Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up to the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smart water. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is actually a special bonus episode. It is not the Upsell. Can we just... Fooled can we you. Just, okay. Bonus. Let me... Let's be honest with the audience here. Say what it is. This is an episode of Start to Sale. It's an episode. It's not bonus. Like, we had this thing, but we really think you should listen to it. You're right. Okay. It's not a bonus. No, it's from our other show, Start to Sale, and this is a food-related episode, and we think it's really great. It's about Zingerman's. Uh, What is Zingerman's? Zingerman's is a group of businesses in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It started as a deli, but now it's like 20 different businesses. Mm-hmm. They have most of them around. They built hosp- lots of bonus businesses. They built bonus businesses. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly around hospitality, but they also have some non-hospitality things like this really famous training program where they basically teach you how to be a better business person. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy who runs it, who co-founded it, Ari Weinswag, mm. is super inspirational. He's an anarchist. He's incredibly intellectual. A lot of the business is built on anarchist theory. Is He's unlike any other business person I've ever heard speak before, and it inspires me just in my personal life and also in my professional life because he talks about visioning for your future. He talks about how he talks about what synergy really is, which we think of as some corporate buzzword, but actually it's from some, it's from native tribes. uh, Cool. And about, Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, good show. Anyway, so enjoy this bonus episode. Bonus episode. How lucky you are to receive this lovely bonus, but it actually is great. So check it out and let us know what you think. And if you love the show like we do, please subscribe to the other feed and get ready for more and more fun content. I don't know if we're going to have any more anarchists for you, but we've got lots of other but interesting we could. business people down the line. Yeah, every episode, our hosts, Aaron Patinkin and Natasha Case, interview a different business person, CEO, talk about their inspiration and getting through the hard times and the joyous times in the world of entrepreneurship. Enjoy. Welcome back to Start to Sale, the show that addresses the challenges that business owners face, like, where am I going and how am I getting there? To help guide uh, people to answer that question, we have on today's episode Ari Weinswey, founder of Zingerman's Community of Businesses, author, runner, and so much more. Zingerman's is a group of about 20 loosely associated companies, mostly focused on hospitality and food in the Ann Arbor area. It includes a deli, a bakehouse, a restaurant, a training organization, a candy company, and more. I've owned a few of Ari's books for years, and specifically, I've used his visioning exercise, which forces you to think 10 years into the future with my own business partner. And I also have encouraged my own staff to make personal visions using that exercise. It's a really great tool. I want to address something. Now, in episode one, Christina Tosi, Natasha, and I all laugh about how the five-year plan is laughable. What we meant by that was that running the numbers five years into the future is part of the game, but it's a little silly because a business is a living thing that is constantly evolving and changing, especially in growth phase. Visioning, on the other hand, is totally essential in my opinion. Um, As an entrepreneur, no vision means no direction. And what I like about what Ari says is that vision can include your subjective view of success. 
it's what you want. I mean, it's it's how you want to work, and and it's how much you want to work, and it's where you want to work. And so, I'm not like ethically opposed to to bigger businesses. I just, you know, people have grown because they're, they think they're supposed to grow, or they grow because they could grow, or they grow because they're chasing money because their cousins all make more money than they do and they feel like they should make money. So, Natasha, how has Vision driven your own growth plans at Cool House? Vision is huge for us at Cool House. Our first angel investor, Bobby Margolis, uh, when we first started working with him, uh, one thing he said to us is, you guys have all these amazing ideas, but where do I find them? And kind of like a homework assignment was to create um, a vision book, which was really mapping out kind of like who we are, who, what's our culture, what are our current products, what do we see as the future products and extension of the brand, and then a bit about like our community and, and kind of, you know, other other elements like press and marketing behind it. And I can't say enough how incredible and transformative it was to create this vision book. Um, not only did it like kind of create, uh, you know, accountability to our team because we would share it with our team and we would use it for the next round of outside investors, buyers at grocery stores, you know, clients for activation, so many different parties, but also like internally made ourselves accountable to what we were saying we were and where we wanted to go. And it's kind of unreal how many things from that vision book we ended up accomplishing. You know, we had originally in that book like, oh, maybe one day we'll do a cookbook. Now we have our Cool House ice cream book. Maybe we'll do pints one day. Now pints are 50% of our grocery business. Um, You know, and and it just, it's a living document and we keep adding to it. And um, I think having that visual is so, so key. And I, I can't emphasize enough to everyone out there like, Take whatever's in your head and just put it on the page, whether that's a number, you know, a Pinterest board, go old school scrapbook, whatever it may be. But it's so much more real when it's a real thing. And I think you'll believe it a lot more. Um, and it's really, really like a lot of just getting it on the page is, is what's scary to people. So when you can overcome that, you're that much closer. Totally. We did something very similar at Ovenly where we had very specific goals in our vision that we wanted to accomplish. But one of the first things that we did, and actually, Natasha, I'm remembering that you told me about this vision book right after we started (laughs) Ovenly. And it was one of the things that drove us to find this book from Ari to create our vision. It's so funny that I'm just having that moment of recollection. Um, Flashback. It's such a flashback. So when we were creating our vision, Agatha and I started really big. You know, we said, what is something that will be kind of hard to accomplish, but we want to get there? And from there, we kind of worked backwards into filling in the blanks of how we could accomplish that vision. And it really has guided us ever since. Um, And in listening to Ari, it's really amazing. He does, you know, they did a 15-year vision, then they redid it once the 15 years was was up, and then they did a 10-year vision. And I think it's really interesting to hear what he has to say about that. So let's get into it now. Thanks. It's great to be on. I came to Ann Arbor from Chicago to go to U of M, which for those who don't know is University of Michigan. I studied Russian history, a particular focus on the anarchists, which we could talk about later if you want. (laughs) I'd love to. After graduating, I had no vision of what I wanted to do. I had only what uh, David White calls the via negativa. That's where you're super 
clueless about where you want to go, but you're really clear on where you don't want to go. <laughs> so I just knew I didn't want to move home. And in order to not move home, I needed a job. And so I ended up getting a job as a dishwasher at a restaurant here in town. Uh, and uh, that's how I got into food. So there was no you know, lifelong entrepreneurial dream of opening a business or opening a food business or cooking or anything like that. I just needed somewhere to work. And uh, and so that's how I started. So Paul, uh, who you mentioned, was the general manager at that restaurant when I started to wash dishes. That's how we connected. Uh, Frank Carolla, who's one of the partners in our bakehouse, was a line cook. And Maggie Bayless, who's the man, one of the partners at Zing Train, our training business, was a cocktail waitress. So I don't know why, but here we all are, uh, the four of us, plus a lot of other good people 40 years later, and we're still working together. So anyways, I started prepping and line cooking and managing kitchens. Uh, I worked for that restaurant group for about four years. Paul uh, left about halfway through that and opened a little world-class seafood market called Monahan's with Mike Monahan. Uh, and he and I stayed friends. Fall of 81, I reached a point that is not uncommon in the world, which is that I didn't hate going to work, but I was sort of less and less inspired by what that organization was doing and where they were headed. So I gave two months notice, unsure of what would be next. Not knowing I'd given notice, Paul called me like two days later and said there was this little building coming open near the fish market that he had opened and that uh, we should go check it out because in Detroit where he grew up, you could get good deli food and in Chicago, you could get it where I grew up, but you couldn't get it here. And somehow within like a week, we decided we would open and four and a half months later, we opened March 15th, 82. And uh, we started in a little 1,300 square foot space selling, you know, all the old Jewish stuff that we had grown up with, corned beef and chopped liver and chicken soup and all that. But also, uh, at the time, a, a radical, uh, if <laughs> small in context, uh, selection of what's now called specialty foods. So a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of jam, honey, salami, smoked fish, all that sort of stuff squeezed into 1,300 square feet. So that's how we started. And then fast forwarding, we operate as one organization with these semi-autonomous pieces within it. So we have a bakery, a creamery where we make fresh cream cheese and other fresh cheeses and gelato. We have a coffee roasting candy business where we make handmade candy bars. Uh, Zing Train is our training business. We have a mail order business and we ship food all over the country. The deli, of course, is still uh, the, the, the main focus uh, of the organization originally, but is one piece. Zingerman's Roadhouse is a sit-down restaurant that's all regional American food. Uh, Zingerman's Cornman Farms is a 1830s barn and farmhouse that we totally renovated to do uh, events like weddings and corporate events. And then uh, Miss Kim is a uh, our second newest business, which is a really nice little Korean restaurant. And then our very newest business as of two weeks ago is we spun our food tours out uh, to become its own business. And uh, Christy Brayblack, who's been with us a long time, but she's now the managing partner there. So we have, I don't know what, 20-something partners all together and about 700 employees. Wow, is that it? <laughs> That's it. Only 20 it's all, businesses? It's all relative. Gigantic, Amazing. gigantic by our standards, tiny by like, you know, whole food standards. That's an incredible feat by any standards. Can you um, quickly describe your role in the ecosystem? Like just give us, you know, pick any day in the life. Give us a day in the life for you. Well, I, although I'm not a morning person, I get up early every day <laughs> and then I journal every day, uh, which is exactly what I did this morning. And I did it at the roadhouse. 
uh, drink coffee, wake up, uh, and then get going. So that could be it could be meetings, uh, which you know we certainly have plenty of. And in between, I guess I tested I tested out a potential new uh, brunch special item that was in my mind. Mm, that sounds like a good day. So on any given day, you could be managing people, writing, or telling someone to make a different type of pancake. Is that what I'm getting? Uh, yeah, I don't know that it would be telling them to make a different type of pancake. <laughs> Very might dogmatic. Be discussing, might be discussing <laughs> pancakes with them. Collaborative yeah. pancake effort. Yeah, so I don't I don't eat breakfast and I don't eat lunch. I just taste, you know, I, I'm not fasting, so I'm like quality checking food all day. But uh, at some point in the later part of the afternoon, usually, depending on the day and the weather, I go run every day and then I do whatever else and then I end up at the roadhouse usually on the floor, uh, working the floor, pouring water and bussing tables or whatever. And then I get home late and then we cook dinner. And then I go to bed later than I should and then I get up earlier than I should and start over. Yeah. Rinse and repeat. Uh, So, all right, explain the Zingerman community model, how you came up with the business idea. Okay. So, uh, in part one of Zingerman's Guide to Good Leading, Uh, There's an essay called 12 Natural Laws of Business, and it is my ever stronger belief that all healthy organizations are living in harmony with those natural laws, i.e. living in harmony with nature. Uh, The first one on the list is that all successful organizations, whether it be a podcast or uh, a food business or a basketball team, have a vision of where they're going. Uh, businesses are not mushrooms and they don't just pop up spontaneously after rainstorms. Somebody had to have the idea, uh, the dream, the the image in their mind of what they were going to create. And so uh, Paul and I, when we opened in 82, we wouldn't have been able to explain vision remotely like we do now. I wouldn't have even probably understood it. Uh, but in hindsight, we had one and our original vision with the benefit of history, and I'm a history major and we know this is how history is created is later. <laughs> we figure out what we think happened uh, is is that we would create something really unique and special. We didn't want a copy of something from LA or New York or Detroit or Chicago. We wanted something unique to Ann Arbor. Uh, We knew we wanted great food, great service, great place for people to work, but do it in a very down-to-earth setting. And from the get-go, for me, for Paul, it was very important to only have one. Uh, I really like unique things. Uh, The folks at the Positive Organizational Scholarship section of the business school here have a little saying, uh, which I love, which is excellence is a function of uniqueness. It's it's just true. It's true in the food business. It's true in art. It's true in music. and, and I've never been into like the sixth unit of the same place and thought like, wow, that's incredible. Uh, you know, when you go to the first one, there's something really special about it. And that's really what we wanted to create was this destination spot that would be known all over for doing what it did. The general wisdom when we opened was we were doomed to fail. Uh, Ann Arbor had 10 or 12 delis go out of business in the previous decade. Everybody said it was a bad neighborhood to go into. There's no parking to this day, et cetera, et cetera. Five years later, we were geniuses. Turned out Ann Arbor always needed a deli, and everybody was behind us from the beginning. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyways, uh, so fast forwarding to 1993, so about 11 years after we had opened, uh, Paul uh, sat me down on the little bench out front of the deli at about 10 in the morning, which is, of course, the worst possible time in a busy lunch restaurant to be sitting down. But anyway, sits me down and sort of with no warning, you know, asked me like, okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? And I'm like, what? 
<laughs> he's like, in 10 years, what are we doing? I'm like, Paul, I got work to do. He's like, this is our work. Uh, you know, in hindsight, I realized he probably was angsting and couldn't sleep for six or eight weeks worrying about, you know, the issue. And what he, in essence, was asking me is, what's your vision? Uh, he had an instinctive sense that we had fulfilled our original vision. Uh, I think he was right. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have known it. It's not like we were satisfied. It's not like we were rich. And it's not like we didn't have a lot of, you know, long lists of things to improve. But there's a difference between improving what you have and going after some great long-term inspirational vision. Can I interrupt to ask a super quick question? Yeah, sure. Eleven. It took 11 years to get to that point. Yeah. In that first 11 years, were there sit-down discussions between you and Paul, you know, where you, wherein you questioned what you were doing, wondered if you were doing the right thing, if you were happy, if the deli was fulfilling you? We had four. No, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure we had a lot of them. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a, I don't know. I, I, I worry about everything at some level. I've just trained myself not to follow the worry. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, I think that's a normal part of human existence is embracing that anxiety, you know, and I can do it a lot more healthily now than I would have been able to do it then. But it's sort of a working on the business, not just in it kind of oh, mentality that starts. To yeah, evolve. absolutely. I think that in the beginning, when you only have two employees like we did, you know, it's it's a, appropriately a lot working in the business. It's 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 not that what we were doing was wrong in the beginning. It's just as we grew, it became apparent to us both instinctively and through reading other people's stuff that we needed to work more and more on the business. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's part of the work. Absolutely. So, so you created this vision 11 years in. Yeah. So we spent about a year of our, I mean, he didn't have the answer. It's not like he had a vision that he was advocating for. It's just, he had the sense that we had fulfilled it. And so, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to be doing in 10 years. I had no clue. So we ended up spending like a year of arguing about it and talking about it and conversing and coming back to the table over and over and over again. And that was the first time we actually wrote out a vision in the way that we do it now. Uh, and that vision, we actually went 15 years into the future, not 10. And that's where we outlined uh, the idea of the community of businesses. And that vision, it's the first time we really learned this process. And we learned it from a guy named Stash Kazmierski, who very sadly passed away about 15 months ago. Um, but he learned it from a guy named Ron Lippett, who was at University of Michigan in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so that's what we set out to do. So you mentioned the Zingerman's community of businesses. So mm -hmm. how are all of those linked? So uh, we could have clearly created a f vision or a future where we were going to, like, whatever, invest in other businesses and then the businesses themselves might have had nothing to do with each other. But for whatever reason, and I think it was it worked out well, and I'm happy we did it, but what we determined in the vision is that it would be this singular organization, but with these pieces within it that were operating with a great deal of independence and that we would create a synergistic setting. And the idea of synergy comes not from some 70s buzzword, but actually from Ruth Benedict, the anthropologist in the 30s uh, who studied Native American tribes and found uh, what Peter Kropotkin, the anarchist, had found earlier, which came out in his book in 1902, Mutual Aid. But that was that the most successful tribes were not the most competitive, but rather the most collaborative. And so synergy literally means if I help you, I'm inadvertently helping myself. And if I help myself, whether I intended to or not, I'm helping you. So the idea was each part of the organization would be contributing back to the others, you know, just 
by dint of what it did. So like when we opened the creamery and we started making handmade cream cheese, then the bagels and cream cheese at the deli were elevated to new heights. Uh, When the roadhouse opened, the bakehouse got this great new wholesale customer, et cetera, et cetera, so that each piece was contributing positively to the others. So we we do have a central services organization that's funded by a percentage of sales uh, from each of the businesses, you know, so like HR and marketing and that kind of thing. Um, But there's a lot of, you know, freedom and autonomy within each business, too. I think that's important for the audience because I think not being in Ann Arbor, never seeing the whole thing and what you've done is so different than what other people have done. And I I can't think of another place in the United States that is doing something that you guys are doing. Yeah, you really thought outside the box with the structure, sort of like what you said about, I think a lot of people apply the uniqueness is that excellence to product or to team, but they don't necessarily rethink the whole model of how they're going to literally be in business. So that's pretty amazing that you not only did that, but that it's, that's thriving. Yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, so there's one of the key actually beliefs of anarchist thinking is that the means that you use must be congruent with the ends that you want to achieve. So I agreeing with what you just said, I mean, in hindsight, it makes a lot more sense that we would have been able to create uniqueness in the business by using a unique model. (laughs) So how specifically are you, are all of the companies working together? What is the structure by which the Zingerman's community operates? Well, interestingly, uh, there's really never been a legal entity Zingerman's community of businesses. It just exists in our minds. Oh my Uh, gosh, that's amazing. Stop. (laughs) Stop. No, it's true. So, I mean, Paul and I own shares in all the businesses, but the key is that we operate as one organization. So it's sort of like uh, Tinkerbell rules. As long as you believe, it works. Uh, (laughs) But but more formally, we actually have a lot of governance stuff that's super clear that we've worked on, you know, imperfect though it is, that we've worked on for decades. Uh, So we run the whole organization at the partners group level. Uh, every month there's a Zingerman's Community of Businesses huddle, which is the open book uh, work. So that those meetings are open to anybody in the organization that wants to come. We even get outside people sometimes, not through intent, but they're there or whatever. Uh, and we use a consensus model for decision-making amongst the partners. Uh, and that consensus three years ago or four years ago, we added three staff partners. So these are people who are not managing partners. They're, you know, hourly staff, managers, whatever, and they're chosen through a whole process that I'm not going to get into now. But uh, so they're part of the consensus. So in essence, from a formal standpoint, they have the same say that Paul or I have uh, in, in the decision making. So that's for organization-wide decisions. Then within each business, there's managing partners and you know, they're running their business too, right? So, and then we also, I mentioned the central services, and then we do a lot of what we call one plus one work. So again, there's an essay on this in the most recent book, but these are like work groups, uh, you know, so we have a benefits work group, a training engineers group, et cetera. Uh, And those are generally coming, you know, people coming from different parts of the organization. And the, the main one in the one plus one is the person's you know, core work, they're a baker or they're an accountant or whatever, but the plus one is an optional piece where they're getting involved in part of, in a different part of the organization, uh, in a different role. So you might be a baker full time, but you're on the benefits committee. 
and it's connecting people in different ways uh, than they normally would connect. And so instead of everything being sort of hierarchically arranged where it all has to flow up, up, up to the top and then back down the other side, you're getting a much healthier array of relationships, which I think is far more resilient and, and effective. So do each of the managing partners own shares in all of the company? And are the companies their own incorporated entities? They are, except now there's some are LLCs. So, but for right. practical sure. purposes, it's the same thing. Right. So, right. so up until three years ago, um, no one owned anything other than their own business, but they were charged with running the whole organization. And at the partners group level, one of the things we did early on, which <laughs> now we could say it was an inflection point, uh, <laughs> was that we asked when people are in the partners group making decisions, all of our charge is to make the decision that we believe is best for the organization, not the decision that's best for our individual business, right? So this is so there's a lot of things that I'm talking about that are the total opposite of the American political system. So no voting because voting leads to disconnect and and. Uh, anger and resentment because immediately somebody lost and they're mad and set about trying to destroy the one who won and vice versa. Uh, and then people aren't representing their business. They're charged with making the decision that's best for the organization. Now, we might not all agree on what that is, but you know, like Maggie from Zinc Train will frequently say, like, there's times where she's made the decision at the partner group level that's actually not good for Zinc Train, but it's a small part of the whole Zingerman's community of businesses. And it's clear that the this decision is better for the group, even though for her little business, it's not super optimal. And that's totally the opposite of, you know, I represent pick your state. And yeah, this is, you know, bad for the country, but I'm looking out for the voters in my state. And you know, that's not ill-intended, but it just creates this constant disconnect and, and, and conflict. Okay, great. I, I guess I should finish with saying, so three years ago, uh, after six years of trying to figure out how to do it, we created employee ownership piece, which we call community shares. Hmm. Um, and so it took a very long time because there's no model like ours, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we basically, Paul and I own among we own shares in the businesses, but we also own the intellectual property. And so we took a piece of the intellectual property. I'm going to go fast and people have a million questions, but they can email me and it's Ari at Zingerman's.com. Uh, and that became the community shares, right? So people, it's a co-op model. So everybody who's eligible can buy only one share, including me and Paul. And that now makes it so people own a small piece of the brand. Was this something that you had come up with individually. You came together to decide this. I woke up one day. No, uh, <laughs> the Russian anarchist. Yeah, the Russian. Gave you the idea. <laughs> well, there's a lot of actually like, yes. to be said. Because, <laughs> yeah. No, because it is. It's a lot about autonomy and and federalism is actually a big piece of anarchist stuff. But that's not what was driving <laughs> in 1983. Consciously, it's it wasn't. But. Uh, no, you know, a lot of the visioning work as we do it is all about collaboration and collaboration frequently means creatively dealing with conflict and coming up with win-win solutions. And so, you know, I was super adamant about only having the one business because I just, you know, everywhere I'd been in the food world and really I think in any industry, you know, when you go to the sixth unit, it's just never as interesting as the first one. I mean, it's not bad and people like the convenience of having it closer in the suburbs or whatever, but it's just never the same. And I mean, pick any, you know, great restaurant that you've been to and then show me the the one that opened in, you know, 
seven years later and it's fine, but it never has that spirit and energy that you get in the original. And so I was really driven to, you know, keep that and make it even better. And Paul really wanted to grow, which I wasn't opposed to. I just didn't know how to grow, you know, while keeping uh, the one the one business unique and special. So anyway, out of that creative tension, this is what we ended up with. So we could grow, but we would grow by opening other Zingerman's businesses uh, where each would have its own unique specialty. And then also I really wanted owners on site. My experience of the work world, not always, but in general, is that when the owner's present, you just get a different buzz and energy than when you know, the own, there's absentee ownership. And I, I understand clearly there's some great managers in the world and there's some lousy owners, so it's, it's a generalization. But anyway, so we wanted managing partners that would own part of the business and really uh, be part of running it. And so that's what we created. But I mean, it, this this isn't like we just sat down and wrote this. I mean, this was a year of like, you know, frustration and conversation and trying to figure it out. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up to the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. So something I want to get into is you talk a lot about, you know, great business versus big business. And I'm wondering first if we can just, you know, uh, hear from directly from your mind how you really um, define those two things and how they're separate to you. Well, I'm not sure they're separate. I mean, I I think the key is that uh, greatness is an internally determined future, right? So there's no right answer as to what's great. The key is that you decide what's great for you. (laughs) So uh, if if going public and being global is somebody's definition of greatness, I think they should go for it. It's just, but I think going along with growth just because everybody else is growing or just because you could grow uh, is not a great answer in the same way that living your life the way your mother wanted you to may overlap with what you wanted. But if you're just doing it because your mother wanted to, you're going to end up, you know, with a sort of hollow uh, life and a lot of internal angst and frustration. So I, I think with business, the key is that people need, you know, hopefully can realize that they get to decide. So in the food business, you could have I don't know. You could have a little diner with 12 seats at the counter and you're the chef and the owner and you cook almost every meal. And I think that's if that's what makes you happy, it's totally great. You know, it's there's no it's right sort of the wrong. harmony point you're saying that there should be a harmonious element with, you know, what yeah, you might what you want. want well, what's, it's what you want. I mean, it's it's how you want to work and, and it's how much you want to work and it's where you want to work. And so I'm not like ethically opposed to, to bigger businesses. I just you know, people have grown because they think they're supposed to grow or they grow because they could grow or they grow because they're chasing money because their cousins all make more money than they do and they feel like they should make money. Someone told them to or that. Yeah. I think that one of the dangers is a lot of business owners think growth means success. And then there's a lot of unhappiness that can come in with that. And I think it's a really important moment to say, how big do you want to be? Yeah. And also, uh, you know, Ari, what you're saying, even to just take the time to really kind of meditate on that, to think about and visualize what that's going to feel like for you versus personal goals. Yeah, and that's the visioning process that we use and teach. I mean, is designed to do that, and it's a partic- it's a specific process. It's not just a sort of sitting around thinking about it because you could think yourself, or at least I could think myself to death. Uh, 
it's it's a process of doing it. But the point of it in this context is it's very inside out exercise. So you know, I'm trying to work more, not less. I'm going right. to run out of years. Some people <laughs> want to work less. I don't really care. It, what I care is just that people are doing something that's aligned with the kind of life that they want to live. You know? Right. Um, there's no one way. No, there's there's no perfect way. I mean, in society, you know, Rollo May, the the mid 20th century psychologist who is, she seems I never met, but seems super interesting and insightful, said uh, the opposite of courage is not cowardice; it's conformity. And there's enormous pressure to conform, you know, and 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 that's difficult. And Murray Bookchin, a very interesting anarchist, said, you know, it's sad that people don't realize that the model of uh, grow as fast as you can, as big as you can, is the same growth model as the cancer cell. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. S- speaking of no one way, um, workplace culture, this is a big mm-hmm. one, uh, you know, for you. And, and um, yeah, it's certainly becoming, I think, a bigger and bigger theme. I know for us at Cool House, it's huge. But mm-hmm. can you speak to the specific things um, that really create that buy-in? Like, what do you think are the ones that move the dial that you guys do and practice that are game changers for your team? Well, I think there's a million things. Uh, so in the most recent book, which is part four of the leadership series, I started to work more actively with the uh, metaphor for organization of ecosystem um, because almost all the models of business and saying this respectfully, but even the idea of moving the needle it all comes from machines. Uh, and and so, you know, high-performance organizations and keep the gears greased and, you know, all of that stuff is based on the industrial model and it's all based on machines, which is very dehumanizing, right? So, and, and not <laughs> aligned with nature. So I, I just, you know, started to imagine, and I'm sure others have done it too, but more and more the idea of ecosystem, organization as ecosystem. And, you know, in in a healthy ecosystem in nature, the one of the key parts is that everything's contributing and everything matters, even the things that seem really uh, statistically insignificant, like bees, turn out to have enormous implications. And I, I think uh, a lot of what I learned from the anarchist work is to try to stop thinking hierarchically because we've all been, or almost all of us in the U.S. have been raised to think hierarchically, like what's the most important thing, what's the top three things, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that thinking is actually antithetical to what's happening in nature, and it creates a lot of, you know, people chasing the gold ring, chasing the magic answer instead of understanding that it's all nuanced, (laughs) it's all interacting, everything's influencing everything else, right? So, the culture, I mean, all of the things that are in the books are, are things that influence the culture, vision, servant leadership, customer service, et cetera. But, I mean, there's like dozens and dozens of things and just, you know, everything down to did the leader greet the newest employee with a smile, like is a big part of the culture, right? So understanding that it's all of this nuanced stuff and that there's no perfect model and that even in a healthy ecosystem, there's still problems and things that are failing. It's just that the overarching health of the ecosystem will help repair those problems relatively quickly. And you is know, it, is it, in, sorry to jump in, but is it? No, no, go ahead. I mean, you have a lot of people in the organization now. Is, is how does everyone touch this philosophy? I mean, there's 
a certain amount maybe they can garner from the interaction, but is it like there are words and passages that must be read and, and then are kind of trained and, and practiced? Or, or how do you get this philosophy, you know, into their heads and into their actions? Especially with such a diverse staff, because I'm assuming you're dealing with everyone from like porters to CFOs. Yeah. Yeah. But because, again, my, my anarchist thing, you know, there's no... The, the CFO doesn't really know any more than the dishwasher knows. They just know different things, and they're not necessarily more intelligent or more capable. So part of, you know, my our strong belief is, like, everybody's – I'm going to just believe everybody's a creative, intelligent human being that can do great things, and then I'm going to treat them accordingly, right? Sure, so, but I think – I mean, I think the reality is also just people respond differently to different ways that they're Yeah, taught. absolutely. That's for sure, but yeah. that's true of CFOs. Yeah, no, of course. Right, so three CFOs are... Yeah, it's just a very Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diverse. Anyway, I'm, I'm agreeing with yeah, you. So, totally. So, uh, I, I, I mean, the answer to your question is they're learning it in a multiplicity of ways. So, you know, we have, I don't know what, 75 different internal training classes that we do. Um, but those are spread out and not everybody goes to all of them. They're going to learn stuff on shift, right? They're going to learn stuff culturally. So, you know, just through conversation with their trainer who, you know, might say like, oh, that's not how we do it here. Or, you know, yeah, yeah, that's what happened in my old job. But when I came here, I realized, you know, X. So they're they're getting it formally through, through you know, in quotes, our educational work, but they're also getting it culturally. And I think when those two things are not aligned, then you get a lot of problems. So there's a lot of unhealthy organizations where they might have a fabulous handbook, but it, nothing remotely close to that happens in real life. And that creates a lack of integrity and a disconnect that's really yeah. problematic. I was going to ask, like, if if someone were kind of more starting out and, and may not have the wherewithal on, let's say, the classes and those kind of, like you said, those more formal training sessions versus getting it from the culture, what do you think's like the number one thing that they could do to help instill that from the get-go? Let's see, there's that hierarchical thinking. <laughs> uh, like a specific <laughs> the number thing. one thing. You're asking about what the organization could do to instill it in a new staff member? Yeah, let's say. Well, I don't, again, I don't think there's any one thing. I think it's just being super mindful of every tiny interaction. So literally how they're greeted, literally did the owner go, you know, the leader, the manager, whatever, go seek them out and welcome them. Uh, but, you know, more formally, I mean, one of the things that, that we still do that I think is really impactful, uh, and I wrote a, an essay on it in the newest book, is that Paul or I still teach the new staff orientation class uh, ourselves. And I think that's huge yeah. uh, because it's the time that the the, the leader is really... Um, it's a personal connection. Sharing the history, sharing the philosophy, getting to know just a little bit about who the new employee is. And to your point about diversity, I mean, it's mixed from the organization, so literally... You know, when I teach it, it could be a new dishwasher, it could be a new head of HR, it could be, you know, a 16-year-old and a 60-year-old, and they're all sitting at the same table together, and there's no correlation between their, their <laughs> ability to have insights and the formal title or age or seniority. So, I mean, I actually, I taught a class on servant leadership uh, about uh, six weeks ago, and um, one of the people who came works part-time for our catering, and he... I can't remember if he asked me. I think he asked if he could bring somebody with him. And I just said, sure, why not? And who he brought was like a sixth grader uh, from a, a nonprofit program that he works with that he's mentoring this uh, kid. And 
his name's Christian Crumble, the kid. And so we do intros at the, you know, in the class. And some, sounds like a Raul Dahl character. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does, but he's, he's so, so we do, we do intros, you know, at any meeting or class, we start with icebreaker or introductions. And so, you know, sometimes when people bring a kid, cause it's not the first kid who's come to a class, uh, you know, they just sit there in color, they do their, you know, thing on the computer or whatever. But he actually introduced himself and, you know, the same way everybody else did and, you know, talked about who he was. And then through the class, he starts raising his hand and making comments and asking questions. And they're as good as everybody else in the class, you know, and it's great because... And maybe more honest also. Yeah. And that's well, it's, it's engaging. Well, he, he wants to be president, but he might be in the <laughs> NBA first. And, you Humble know, goals. like, why not? Well, it's okay. He was super nice and grounded, and he his insights and comments on the class material were really good. How was his uh, How's his hook shot, though? Well, I don't know. No one does hook shots anymore, I guess. Really, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I grew up with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, so everybody had a hook shot. But <laughs> but anyway, my point is just getting to know people in that format, and then sharing your history, sharing your vision, sharing your values personally is, I think, is hugely impactful. I have a question for you. All right. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what podcasts are all about. You mention you have over 700 staff. Mm-hmm. Have you found that there have been inflection points where the culture almost crumbled, where you've had to regroup and rethink about your culture? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> Is that before or after your jog? <laughs> Either. You know, During. I... I, I I mean, I don't know, but I think inflection points are overrated and they're only created by history. So I, I think the reality is it's all failing and succeeding simultaneously every day, right? So, uh, and I think none of us do it well enough. I don't. Uh, I think we're all making mistakes and that we're all at risk, but I, I think that's our work, right? So coming back to the idea of ecosystem, I mean, even in the most beautiful forest, there's still some dis- trees that are dying there's still some you know problem patches whatever and again the idea is to create organizational health and then that that overrides the disease and then to keep working on improving things so it's it's never perfect it's always falling short i mean i don't know pick your metaphor i mean in a in a in a big basketball game whatever you're in la kobe bryant you know when he they would if they won the championship i mean they still missed a lot of shots and they made a lot of bad <laughs> decisions during the game, but they won the game. So in the end, nobody really worries about it. Is there a way that you internally measure culture? Do you have any ways that you can quantify information to see if you're... I know that everything is failing and succeeding every day. I totally agree with that. But ultimately, and you still have to move more towards success than you do failure. No, without question. Uh, I mean, I think the key is multiple metrics. So again, if you have only a singular metric in anything in your life, you're going to it's not going to work. So, I mean, if you're, if your metric of personal health is your body weight, that's great, but you still need to know your blood pressure and your cholesterol level and your, you know, whatever. And I think in organizations, when people pick only one metric, that's not healthy either. So, you know, we do a staff survey. We, uh, you know, I think the financial metrics are certainly one metric, one way to measure, and we have multiple of those. We have service metrics, food quality metrics, and they're they're all impact each other, right? So if people aren't engaged in their work and they don't really care, the quality of the product's going to suffer. So e- even though that's not a, a direct metric of workplace 
satisfaction, or which is a bad word anyway, but happiness or well-being is probably better. Uh, you know, it's telling you that there's something wrong, right? Because when people really care and they're living the systems that they help to design, the product is going to come out good. I mean, do you find that um, you're able to get if if there are uh, if there is a you know people are unhappy, are you able to? to get that kind of openness for um, them to share that with you? Because it's historically so difficult. You know, you don't necessarily yeah. want to tell your boss, even if it's feedback that can be very constructive. Right. There's a fear with, you know, then, okay, then I'm rocking the boat too much, or I just want them to think I'm happy so that they think that I'm doing a good job. It, how do you, do you create that, that back and forth dialogue? And, and what yeah. tricks have you found for that to work if so? I, it's hard. I mean, it's hard for me. And I'm, you know... The whatever co-CEO of a 60-something million dollar company and it's awkward for me to bring stuff up. I don't want to do it. It's just, you know, learning to, It's I, I guess part of it is honoring that, you know, not that everybody believes me, but I'm afraid of all of it. I just learned to try to do it anyway. Um, I think there's a common misconception and a commonly used statement that, you know, we have to make it so people feel comfortable bringing up the difficult things. I'm like, I'm not comfortable. <laughs> I'm never going to be comfortable. I just need to do it anyway. And mm-hmm. and so and then it's, you know, it's again it's systemic, it's cultural. So we have a process we teach in a class on it that's about four steps to going direct. So that helps. Uh we're open book management so people are in huddles. We have staff survey, we have, you know, manager staff chat sessions. We you know, it's and then if you're present and you're engaged, people are going to tell you things that they're not going to like. You know, call headquarters in Antwerp and report <laughs> necessarily. You know, so it's right. it's all of the above. I mean, and it's still imperfect, and it's just trying. You know, it's like any relationship. I mean, anybody who's been in a long term relationship, it's not like you bring up every issue the day that it happens. And I don't think. I mean, usually. You know, I think about it. Is is it me? Is it her? Is it, you know, have I brought it up? Should I bring it up? Am I really being empathic enough? And, you know, it's a it's a complex, you know, emotional, intellectual construct. And if you have 700 people, they're all in (laughs) somewhere in that construct, generally moving from place to place within minutes, sometimes depending on other things. So, again, it's just trying to create a healthier ecosystem. So maybe one person is a, too anxious to bring it up, but they're going to complain to their coworker who's going to go, come on, man, I'll go with you. Let's go to the huddle. We need to bring this up. So culture, obviously extremely important, affects staff well-being, affects how mm-hmm. customers perceive their experience, et cetera. Right. And you also have a unique model from what I understand of how the new businesses begin within the community. So mm-hmm. if I had a business idea and I wanted to join the community of businesses, Mm-hmm. What would I have to do to start my concept within Zingerman's? And then how do the current managing directors vet the people coming in? I, do you have mm-hmm. a way of um, figuring out if someone is vision and value aligned with you, if it's yeah. going to be the right partner? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I just was thinking about when you brought up culture again. So metaphorically, I started to look at culture as the soil in the ecosystem because when you study organic, sustainable, whatever, agriculture, it's always about feeding the soil and creating more health. So I think the partners emerge, hopefully, from a healthy soil in the first place. But, uh, you know, we have a whole path to partnership, which is a documented process, which started out completely undocumented and much looser. And then every time we screw up something, we add another piece to the process to try to avoid the pain point. Um, 
but the but the point of the process uh, is just what you described. I mean, as best we can to see if the person is values aligned and vision aligned, et cetera. So uh, when Paul and I do the new staff orientation class that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we both bring up each in our own way is that literally everybody at the table or anybody at the table could become a partner in the organization, and we hope that they will be. Uh, and if they have an idea about a Zingerman's business that would fit with what we do and it would be geographically, you know, here in town, we would love to talk to them. And so that's really how it starts, I mean, as a conversation. And a next step would be for them to draft a vision of what that business would look like. And then, of course, there's a lot of back and forth and iterations of drafts. And then the formal process, you know, moves forward. So, you know, we ask that people work in the organization for at least a year, that they do a leadership change project, that they go through our leadership uh, uh, development program, you know, stuff like that where we're, you know, it's not perfect, but it's just trying to get people more and more engaged with the work that we do and the way that we do it. And I, I think really, I mean, you, honestly, we learn a lot just from, or I learn a lot, and I think they learn a lot from going through the process because like all long-term projects, there's moments that you feel like, you know, that you described before. I mean, you feel like you're failing. There's moments where it's like, I'm going to kill these guys. It's never going to work. And there's moments where it's like, this is going to be fabulous. We can do this. And I think that we learn a lot about the part quality of the partnership or potential partnership from those frustration points and from those success points. Uh, and you know, then it sort of gets near the end. Uh, they've had conversations with the other partners, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I should mention we make organizational decisions at the partner group level, which means a consensus, and we use a consensus model at that level. So they will have talked to all those people. Uh, then there's a formal application they fill out if everything's gone well to that point. Uh, and then from there, we go into town hall meetings with frontline staff. And then there's a final approval, uh, which by that point, it's sort of a done, pretty much a done deal because it's gone on so long and everybody's been a part of it. And that's actually just what happened uh, last Thursday with Christy Brayblack uh, with this food tour business. Wow. And then there's, is there a cash buy-in as well, right? There is. Uh you know, we don't look at the partner as the major funding source per se because it's they're not – I mean, we're not looking for people with necessarily with – I mean, we're not opposed to it. But yeah, right. generally, if somebody's coming from within, they're not sitting on zillions of dollars. So it's more – Gives them skin in the game. Skin in the game. Exactly. Have any of the companies in the community uh, failed or have you – is there any moment where you had like a Brexit where you were like, you got to – we got to break up. You got to get <laughs> out of here. Um, well, Brexit's fairly extreme, <laughs> and, I just... uh, but yeah, we have, I mean, I, I think this is, you know, Paul taught me this early on is like, if we're going to do this, there's going to be failures. Uh, and again, in the ecosystem model, it's less cataclysmic, you know, in, in, in sort of in the sports model, it's like this horrible thing we lost, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the ecosystem, I mean, you know, my girlfriend's a farmer. I mean, she. You know, I don't remember how many pepper seeds she put down, but a lot of them didn't grow. I mean, but then, you know, there's stuff that she didn't think was going to be as successful as it is that's growing really great, right? So I think, again, it's the overall success is what we're trying to look at and to honor the reality that there's going to be failures and frustrations. And that's hard for me coming from a perfectionist upbringing, but, you know, then sort right. of realizing over the years that actually nature is imperfect. <laughs> and so perfectionism is actually the pursuit of the unnatural. Can you tell a story of a specific, um, 
I'm trying to, you know, get with my nature metaphor so I don't scare you off with more machine <laughs> uh, parallels. But like when the tree was chopped, you know, or <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, you, I mean, there was a weed you go, had to I'll pull. I'll go back. Yeah, I mean, I'll go back a long way so it doesn't impact anybody in the moment directly but and this is top secret don't worry no one's gonna hear (laughs) (laughs) i thought there's like you you told me there were 40 million listeners to this podcast oh yeah Um, there are Uh, four billion actually (laughs) billion that's so cool i heard this is listened to regularly on mars yeah um you know we had a low produce market this is in the mid 90s and i mean it didn't work out it's not through malice and it's not through anything the partnership didn't work out and you know, it's it's painful. I mean, it's like getting divorced. It's yeah. not fun. Uh, it's, you know, again, try. You know, uh, you can go through that process with grace and and respect and dignity. Is difficult and stressful and challenging as it is, and still come out the other side. You know, and so I think that's. You know, I'm sure we didn't do it as well as we could have, but we, that's what we try to do. Right. Sometimes you have to reboot. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> There you go, another machine <laughs> metaphor. People, people, people leave the organization. Right. Uh, you know, and and it's super important. You know, we would say, and I believe it strongly. I mean, to treat them with dignity when they leave, because they're yeah. free human beings, and they have the right and freedom to choose to not be there. And you know, the reality is, a lot of them that just actually happened this morning. One of them's coming back. Uh, wow. You know, because well, other ecosystems aren't always so healthy. <laughs> Yeah, we were just talking before this that second marriages often are more successful than the first. So, well, you learn a lot by failure too. I mean, it's serious. Just opening so, like a floodgate with that one. Yeah, that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, a different <laughs> we'll stay away from that for now. Well, but, I, I think but no, we, I think these parallels are useful. Yeah, and I think what you obviously what you've created is so big and so great that it can withstand. You know, there's gonna like you said, there's gonna be failures, there's gonna be tumult, but the there's the the greater good is is a broader operating ecosystem. So it allows for you know imperfections and flaws to kind of organically yeah. work their way out, or like you said, sometimes back in. Yeah, it's it's not a totally wild ecosystem. So there's a farmer. <laughs> Right. But the point is to work in harmonious in ways that are harmonious with nature and that, you know, in nature, the healthiest ecosystems are the most diverse. And so in the same way with an organization. So, you know, because of we're in so many different businesses or industries within the organization, we really never get the boom years that, you know, a lot of like if you're in a really great spot in a particular industry and everything booms, then you rock it to the, you know, whatever. But you know, for us, it's more likely that three or four businesses are doing well, two or three are struggling, you know, and that sort of shifts over time. But it also provides more stability. We have, I mean, like you said, I think there's there's we still so much more that we would love questions. to ask. But we could yeah. do a whole podcast. I know. We yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, but, I don't know more. I mean, even what we have learned is so valuable and cool, and it's incredible what you've built, truly, from, from the inside out. So thank you for, you know, what, what you've brought to the planet. And for <laughs> and from my perspective, my company reads your books. We bring in Zingermans for training, and it's just really amazing to have you here with us today. Yes. But we have one well, last yeah. <laughs> one last thing. The skill. The skill. Yeah. You have allu- not alluded to, but you've described actually tons of skills and um, and the, the ways in which you do what you do. But what we're wondering, because we really want to create for our audience um, just some takeaways that they can really apply to what they're doing. 
Um, yeah. So is it possible of all of all these great nuggets, you know, to choose one and really break it down for us, you know, how you do it so that a listener can can go and apply that skill themselves potentially? In their business. In their business or life, or life or nature, or, all of it. To that point, I would say part of what makes our approaches work is that they actually are identical to what you do in your personal life. <laughs> so that instead of what most businesses are doing, which is teaching stuff that's almost antithetical to what you're trying to do at home, this is teaching techniques and processes and mindsets that are the same whether it's with your kid or whether it's at work. But anyway, uh, and I, I, I don't know, visioning, does that sound good? Sure. Let's, talk, let's yeah. break it down. Let's visioning. break it down. Okay. So and I, I'll just say because I, I don't want to space it out. But so th- with the business books, we actually are sort of off the grid. So we print them here in town. We do all the design and everything. So it's sort of the farm-to-table version of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're kind of not on Amazon. So they're at zingtrain.com along with the training seminars. And there's a whole two-day seminar on the visioning. And I've written a bunch of essays about it that are going to give you way more detail than I'm going to fit into the next three minutes. But uh, so the visioning process, I will say, changed my life. Uh, it's completely not how I grew up. It's almost the opposite of how I was raised. Um, but it's basically a process of getting clear on, you know, what we talked about earlier, which is what does success look like for you? So not what does the business school tell you you should do, not what's your competitor doing, not what's possible theoretically, but what does success look like for you? So, And do you draw this or think this or write this or any of the We write it. Uh, I know a lot of people work with vision boards, which I think is a good way to, you know, if you're a visual thinker to trigger ideas. But I just, my belief is that uh, although the vision board will be super clear to the leader who created it, the odds of someone else interpreting it you know, seven layers through the organization remotely close to the original is not that high and that we live in a culture that's written uh, and that the writing is clearer to people what you mean. But um, this visioning process, like I said, was developed in its core work by Ron Lippett and he called it preferred futuring. So we had, we've adapted it uh, and adjusted it somewhat, but it's still basically that process, which is basically you plant yourself in the future. If it's for your business, it might be five years, eight years, 20 years uh, down the road, and you describe that success. And you describe that success with a whole lot of detail uh, so that when you get there, you will actually know you've arrived, right? So uh, our current vision for 2020, which was written in 07, over about an 18-month period, uh, is nine pages long. So it talks about how people will feel that work there. It talks about how the community will feel about us. It talks about having fun. It talks about learning and people coming from around the world to learn. It doesn't reference podcasts because we didn't know they existed in 2007. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, so the point is that you're describing success. So it's basically writing a story, uh, but it's your story and it's written in the present tense as if it's already happened. So it's an affirmation. It's not a statement of what's going to happen. Mm, it's, I like it's that. as if it already happened. It's not a list. Uh, I like lists, but bullet points are not the same as a vision uh, because there's no emotion in the bullet points and the vision is all about emotion, right? So it's about, yes, you know, roughly what are your sales going to be? So you have some idea of scope and scale, but also how do you feel when you go to work? <laughs> Uh, you know, not every detail of what you do, but if you're passionate about woodworking, then put it in there, you know. And so we use vision for everything. So it's not just for the organization. People write personal visions. We write visions for projects. We write visions for changes we're about to implement. 
Um, it becomes really a way of thinking and through neuroplasticity, which people have now know, the brain changes shape and you change the way you think over time. Uh, if you do the, use the visioning process regularly for a period of years, it really shifts your mindset from what most of the world is doing, which is fixating on what's wrong and who's screwing it up and who's keeping them from getting where they want to go into a much more positive, affirmative mindset of like, what do I want to create and what will this look like, feel like, in our case, taste like when it's working really well. It's so awesome. I, I have to, to share really quickly that our kind of um, first angel investor slash mentor coach who got involved with Cool House, this is one of the first activities he had us do, is he called it Vision Book. And mm -hmm. it was a complete game changer for us. And I think just the accountability of putting it on the page, it does yeah, totally. kind of push you to strive for it. And um, for yourself, for your team, for those outside your organization, you may be looking to attract. And it's such an, an amazing feeling to look back at something you put on a page, you know, theoretically and say, wow, I did that. And also, I yep. think that there's so many of us, we did this vision, your specific exercise, my business mm -hmm. partner and I, and we've done it twice. And I think one of the things that was really amazing about doing this and why anyone listening to this podcast should try it is because I think a lot of us just doubt ourselves so much every day yeah. because we're afraid to admit that we have talents or we feel insecure about our ability to accomplish or whatever those things are. And what I loved about writing this and writing it in the present as though it's 15 years or 10 years in the future or whatever, however many years you want to take it, forces you to think about what you can do to get there. I think, you know, one of the things that my business partner and I realized is women, we, you know, we can be humble to the point of self-deprecation. And it really mm -hmm. took us out of that, really was fundamentally essential to um, our partnership and to the company when we first did it. So I, I love that exercise. And I'm glad that's the skill that you chose. Yes, to break thank out. you for sharing. That's a huge one. Changed my life. I yeah. wish we could talk to you so much longer. Me too. But want to thank you for joining us today. Um, and for all you've shared and and just so excited to see where you know, what's next for you and, and where this all continues to go. We're working on the next vision. So we'll see where that goes. And people can email me directly if they want. It's just Ari at Zingermans.com. Awesome. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Start to Sale. We really want to hear what you're getting out of the conversations we're having with these wonderful entrepreneurs. And we want to know what you want more of. Are there entrepreneurs that you love that you want us to talk to? Is there a resource you need? Feel free to send us an email at hi at starttosale.co or direct message us on Instagram. I'm at Aaron Patinkin, and Natasha is at Natasha J. Case. We'd love to hear from you if you've been able to apply anything from Start to Sale episodes to your business. We'll be continuing the conversation on our website, starttosale.co, where you'll find resources and more. And of course, we'd love a review in whatever podcast app you use. Tell us what you think whenever you can spare the time. We'll talk to you soon. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up to the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste.